Well, good afternoon, everybody. It's not yet Christmas, it's only October 31, but despite that fact, Jesus is still the reason for the season. And that's because we've been studying the early chapters of the book of Matthew. And in this book, Matthew is on about Jesus. He's on about Jesus from the beginning to the end. And the question we're seeking to answer in studying these passages is exactly this. Who is this person called Jesus? And the, and the scriptures do not let us underestimate how important a question that is. Because the ultimate well-being of any person on earth is going to be determined by their right or wrong understanding of Jesus. Now that's a very bold claim. But that is Matthew's claim in these chapters. Because what we found is that Jesus is no ordinary man. In chapter 1, we learnt that Jesus is born of a virgin, who was found pregnant by the Holy Spirit. And just as the Old Testament prophets predicted, he would be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. Then we saw Jesus, though still a young child, was visited by wealthy wise men from a distant land, just so they can bow down and worship him. And last week, we discovered a strange figure, John the Baptist, whose job was to get the people ready for the coming of Jesus. Because Jesus will baptise them not with water, but with the Holy Spirit or with the fire of judgment. And this is where we pick up Matthew's portrayal of Jesus in chapter 3, right at the end in verses 16 and 17. And we see here that Jesus is baptised by John. But unlike every other baptism John performed that day, something amazing happens after Jesus comes out of the water. The heavens are opened and a voice from heaven says, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. But what does that mean? What does it mean for Jesus to be the Son of God? And why does God at that moment of Jesus' baptism reveal to us that he's God's Son? And I think the answer to that question comes when we realise that the events of Jesus' life are being arranged by Matthew to show us who Jesus is. That is to say, Jesus' life is a fulfilment of Old Testament scripture. And this is true also for his identity as the Son of God. In fact, Matthew's already let us in on this secret. Because you may recall that Joseph had to take Jesus and Mary to Egypt in fear of their life before they come and settle in Nazareth. And in chapter 2, in verse 15, Matthew quoted this event as a fulfillment of the prophet Hosea, saying, Out of Egypt I called my son. But if we were to look at Hosea chapter 11 and verse 1, we would discover that Hosea wasn't writing specifically about Jesus. The prophet was reminding Israel about God's love and kindness towards them when he rescued them, calling them out of Egypt, from slavery in Egypt. And in Hosea, God is lamenting that his Old Testament son, Israel, have turned their backs on him. But now here in Matthew, we have a new son of God. And this new son is like the old son of God, Israel, in many ways. For example, like Israel, Jesus came out of Egypt. And like Israel, who underwent a kind of baptism when they were rescued through the waters of the Red Sea, here we have Jesus, after the prophecy of Egypt, coming up out of the waters. And like Israel, who was led into the wilderness to be tested for 40 years, Jesus himself now undergoes a time of wilderness testing. But in case you missed all those Old Testament pictures in Jesus' life, telling us who he is, God confirms it for us. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. So having laid that foundation, let us turn to chapter 4 and the testing of Jesus 
to see what we can learn about him as the Son of God. Notice firstly that it was God's will for Jesus to be tested. It's not by accident. This whole event is so that God can reveal to us his Son. Note firstly the place of his testing. This is in the desert places where God has tested Israel, his Old Testament son. And thirdly, notice the agent of God's testing, the devil, which is very important and we're going to come back to that. But let's get to the good part. How does the son perform in his testing? Verse 3 says, And the tempter came to him and said to him, If you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Now keep in mind that Jesus hasn't eaten for 40 days. I mean, Jesus is hungry. He's so hungry that I reckon he would have even eaten gluten-free bread. But the Son of God, he's trusting his Father. And the angels of God have not yet arrived to administer to him. Instead, the first angel to come is the great fallen angel, Satan. And he has a solution for Jesus' hunger. And it goes like this. If you are the Son of God, why are you suffering? Exercise the powers you have as the Son of God. Why not turn these stones into bread? Now this is interesting. Because it reveals to us that all the powers of darkness, they believe that the Son of God will have divine power to to bend creation to his will. Like God in the Old Testament who made water flow from rocks and brought down manna to feed his people, this Jesus can turn rocks into food? That's right. Satan here testifies to the divine power and the divine nature of the Son of God. But having that very power and nature of God, he does not use it to alleviate God's will for him to be tested. That is, unlike the Son of God Israel in the Old Testament, when they were tested with hunger and tested with thirst in the wilderness, they complained against God and complained against Moses and they threatened to turn back from God's will to go back to the place of their slavery. Indeed, I reckon if Satan had shown up to that son with a solution to turn rocks into bread, they would have gobbled them down just as surely as they'd melted down their own gold to build a golden calf and worship it. But not this son. He resists the temptation to veer from the path that God would have for him which is why he responds with the word of God from Deuteronomy in chapter 8. For it is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so Jesus denies himself. He denies himself. Because this first test in the wilderness points us to a greater test, of which the Son of God must endure. That's his death on a cross. And so Jesus must deny himself. Just as he prays in the Garden of Gethsemane at the end of Matthew's book in chapter 6, My Father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. But the devil's not deterred. And the test in the wilderness is not yet over. Verse 5 says this, Then the devil took him up to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple, right at the top. Now I don't think Jesus is a climber. He's in the wilderness. So we're dealing with some kind of supernatural experience. But notice what Satan does. Knowing Jesus' deference to the word of God, Satan quotes to him the scriptures. Now this is also fascinating. Because I think Satan does some really good biblical theology here by recognising the fact that Psalm 91 applies to the Son of God. And so I think it's worth opening Psalm 91, if you can. Keep a finger in Matthew 4, but... 
Open Psalm 91. It's on page 497 of the Church Bibles. And when you get there, you will find that this psalm is all about the one who perfectly trusts in Almighty God. Psalm 91 from verse 1. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my strength, my God in whom I trust. For he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler. He will cover you under his wings. No evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your tent. And towards the bottom, here come the verses that's used by the devil in his testing of Jesus. He will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And so the devil dares him. On the back of that Psalm 91, written about him as the Son of God, if that's true, cast yourself down from this high place, because surely God will rescue you. Now that's pretty good logic. But Jesus finds fault with the devil's use of scriptures. And so he quotes again from Deuteronomy chapter 6. Again it is written, You shall not put your Lord, your God, to the test. You see, Psalm 91 is truly spoken of Jesus. He is the one who perfectly trusts in the Most High God. He is to be afforded every single one of his protections and his provisions in accordance with the will of God. But it's not for the Son of God to to test the love of his Father, to test it in a reckless and pointless abuse of his power and position. God's rescuing power would come upon Jesus in fulfillment of Psalm 91. For Psalm 91 says right there at the bottom, I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honour him. But that revelation of Jesus as the Son of God will not come by Jesus casting himself off the Temple Mount. No, that rescue, that honour will come after a Sabbath day, in the early morning, On the first day of the week, when two Marys come looking for the dead body of Jesus at the tomb and the angel tells them, he is not here, for he's been raised. That's in Matthew chapter 28. This perfect trust of Jesus goes beyond death and this perfect deliverance of the Father will snatch him from the grave. And so round two goes to Jesus. But the tempter does not give up. He doesn't give up actually because God has still got more to teach us about his son in this episode. Verse 8, Again the devil took him up to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he says to him, All these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Here is another supernatural experience. And from this supernatural vantage point, he looks out over the whole world. And the offer of Satan is quite simple. Worship me and I will give you every power on earth. Do you think this is a legitimate offer? Does Satan really have all the power over all the kingdoms of the earth? The answer to that question in this text and in the rest of the New Testament seems to be yes. For example, Jesus calls Satan the ruler of this world in John 14.30. In 2 Corinthians, Paul has this to say about the devil. He, the God of this world, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. The picture the Bible paints of our reality is a world under the stranglehold and grip of the power of Satan. And we see examples of this in Matthew's book. We saw that the kings of the earth, a man like Herod, have set their hearts and their faces against God and his son. 
but also we notice that the power of Satan has reached even the everyday people. Because so many demon-oppressed people were brought to Jesus, even in this passage here in chapter 4. So it is true. This claim of Satan to have control and power of all these kingdoms appears to be legitimate. But the essence of this third temptation, I think, lies in this. That the title Son of God is a claim to kingship. A claim to the title deeds of the kingdom of this world. And it isn't just the devil who anticipated the Son of God to be king. The Jewish people knew this also from their Old Testament Bibles. In Matthew 26, during the the trial of Jesus, the high priest even challenges him, Tell us if you're the Christ, the Son of God. So the Son of God is a messianic title, with claims that spread far beyond a land in Palestine. And so the devil offers him nothing less than this. He offers another way for Jesus to be a type of King of King and Lord of Lords. But the Son of God has another allegiance. You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. Can anyone guess what book of the Bible that comes from? Yep, just like before, it comes from the early passages of Deuteronomy. All of the verses that Jesus uses to fight off the devil come from that second reading of the law, as Moses reflects on Israel's failure in the wilderness. But Jesus isn't like that Son of God nor the kings in the Old Testament, when tempted with worldly power and glory in a way that was contrary to God's will, he refuses to turn aside. This son of God is committed to inheriting his kingdom by fulfilling the scriptures when he dies on a Roman cross and then takes up his life again from the grave. It isn't only so he can rule over these nations that he does that, but so that he can redeem them from the power of darkness and death. So round three goes to Jesus. But what does this episode in Jesus' life mean for us really? Well, as I reflected on this passage this last week, here are some thoughts that I had. Have you ever thought about the role of the devil? Why does God allow evil? Why does God allow Satan to roam about tempting people with evil? You know, a lot of people have trouble accepting God on this basis. How could a loving father even allow this very incident in Jesus' life? Well, now we have some answers for that question. The devil is used here by God to test and prove and reveal the faithfulness of his son, and by extension, the faith of his holy people. Like all of God's creation, even the devil ultimately exists to serve the purposes of God. Now, he does that by trying to mess them up, but when he fails, the Son of God is magnified, And so it is in Christianity. The works of evil are not random, purposeless events. No, God has a reign on the evil one. He has appointed a time for Satan to afflict his son. And he's appointed a time for him to afflict the people of God. But he's also appointed a time for this ultimate judgment. And what many don't recognize when they reject God on his basis of allowing evil for a time is that God himself, in the purpose, sorry, in the person, of his son, allowed himself to be impacted by that same evil so that he might overcome it. Jesus' testings show that he's not like everybody else who gives in. The devil has no power over him. And so the day is coming when Jesus will utter those final words in verse 10 one more time, one final time, Be gone, Satan! And he will never come back to afflict the people of God. And that's helpful to us. 
It's helpful to us in our day because we live in a time when things seem to be getting worse and worse. The injustice, the radical corruption in all of our levels of our society. If our ultimate hope for remedying any of this is put in earthly rulers or schemes or a new system of government, then our hope is so short-sighted because it's this Son, Jesus, who will bring the victory. Now, I'm not saying that Christians shouldn't strive for justice in this lifetime. I'm a big believer in Christian politics, in Christian activism. But if we ignore or reject the Son of God while we engage in these pursuits and battle these kinds of forces, then ultimately we're going to be found on the wrong side. But this testing in the wilderness, I think, is also another sober reminder that the Son of God entered a world under the reign of Satan. When Jesus enters the wilderness, the devil is defending his own turf. And this evil one really is entangled in every affair of mankind, in every nation, in every government, in every false religion. And sadly, he's even at work among the churches and much more to get us off track. And his power comes from his influence over sinful human beings who are not led by the Spirit. And this has become clearer for us here in Western society over the past few decades. We are losing, if not lost, the last remnants of our Christian worldview that undergirds Australian society. And because it was Christian, most people used to recognise that human beings were fallen creatures, which is why our system of rule of law with its checks and its balances was based on that assumption. But as our culture has turned our back on God, We've replaced that notion with this utopian view of humanity and the world around us, a prevailing idea of progressivism. And it speaks to us constantly and it tells us that wherever humanity is headed, technologically, scientifically, socially or morally, that's for the betterment of humanity. But this passage, this wilderness testing, reminds us that the Christian life is lived in the wilderness. Evil is at our doorsteps. And so we need to recover our suspicions of the world. We need to stop being so naive. The sons of God need to learn from the Son of God because as Christians, we're entering an age where we are going to be tested in a way that we haven't before. The devil is going to whisper in our ears that as the children of God, we should be about maintaining our personal comforts that we've been used to in Australia, as if our personal comforts were the most important thing. This past week I heard of a man, Pastor Phil Hutchins in Canada, and he's had to spend a week in prison because he refused to split his church and tell his brothers and sisters who don't have an injection yet that they can't come in and be a church family. Now that's just one example of a test. There are other things happening in our culture. Here in Australia we have some laws in some states that make it illegal for Christians to minister to certain categories of sinners. But the church does not play by the categories of the world. There are not two types of sinners, just like there are not two types of Christians. And if we don't understand like Jesus, that always having a full tummy and keeping ourselves safe is not the most important thing, but a commitment to the word of God, then we're going to fail this test. We're going to become discouraged and we're going to lose faith. But as we stand for the Lord, we should not be afraid. Remember Psalm 91? The Lord is my shelter and my stronghold. He will certainly rescue you, just as he rescued the Lord Jesus. 
Psalm 180 verse 6 says, The Lord is with me. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? Such is the call of our day. Now we haven't looked too much at the second half of chapter 4. But if I examined it with the depth that it deserves, we won't get our cup of tea today. But there are a few thoughts here that would make a good conclusion. The public ministry of Jesus in chapter 4 begins after this revelation of him as the Son of God. He begins after his forerunner, John the Baptist, has been taken out of the scene, which is a reminder, I think, that God's purposes are now focused on his New Testament son. As John the Baptist would say, he must increase and I must decrease. Is that how you think about the Son of God when you read the Old Testament history of Israel? Do you recognise that these Old Testament pictures, this Old Testament Son, points you to Jesus? Well, notice also where Jesus commences his ministry. It's in, in Galilee, a long ways up from Jerusalem. Which is why you get this prophecy from Isaiah in verse 15. Galilee of the Gentiles, a people dwelling in darkness, have seen a great light. Now, Galilee was a despised region, but there were sizable Jewish communities living in it. But it was regarded as a place far from the temple and far from the holy city, and so it didn't benefit from the cultic life of uh, that central Jerusalem. But here it's where Jesus shines the light of his kingdom first, and it reminds us that whilst the Old Testament kingdom, the son of Israel, sorry, was confined to a particular place, This new son of God is going to spread his kingdom into places that have never before benefited from the truth of God's word. And finally, that last verse tells us how popular Jesus was in the early stages of his life. Verse 24, his fame spread throughout all Syria and great crowds followed him. Now I want you to remember that because next week when we begin our sermon series by skipping to the end of Matthew's book in chapter 26, you'll notice that all the crowds are gone. It's just Jesus and his 12 disciples. And then those 12 disciples either betray him, they deny him, or they run away from him in fear for their lives. And they leave the Son of God, this Christ, all alone to face his greatest test.